This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin. You're tuned in to the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. We've reached the middle of the year and so we're going to reflect and look back at some of the more interesting conversations that we had throughout the first six months of 2022. First up, we caught up with Zin Chang. She's one of the co-founders of Bai Chuan Management, the body responsible for the famous lane in Petaling Street, Kwai Chai Hong. How did they fare during the pandemic and move on from it? Here's a snippet of our chat earlier this year. Oh, um, let's just say nobody expect things to be this different. Um, but I think it's it's already uh, going to be you know two years coming to two years I think or maybe one and a half year the last we spoke. So the new norm has kind of really sunk into the norm norm. Um, and Bai Tai Hong so far um, has been doing okay. Yeah, I mean we're really blessed. We're really lucky. Crowds are still coming. We're managing SOP a lot more differently. But yeah, things has been good. Our tenants are all happy. There are audiences. I think locals, uh, people are looking for things to to look forward to, to be more positive, and you know, look for places to go. Um, I'm glad Guai Hong is one of those locations, lah. Okay, so I guess we have to talk about one way or another the the past two years. But prior to that, I think even even before before yeah the pandemic happened, um, you were on an upward trajectory, right? So one way or another, um, so like yeah, what was that like? I think prior to prior to the pandemic, like how how were things like you know before that? Okay, so before pandemic, when you spoke to me in August, we were definitely on an up upward momentum. Maybe because there was no no base too low because we just started uh, as a nobody right so August when we spoke to you um, we were getting quite a bit of attention from the public um, and it was getting more and more positive uh, in terms of the reaction from people and by I'd say by the end of um, uh, 20 by uh, by mid 2020 we were already labeled as one of the most Instagrammable spot in Kuala Lumpur That alone brought a lot of uh, young people uh, back to KL Chinatown, and that was the main aim. We wanted to make sure that there is a new generation of people, because KL Chinatown was getting a lot of maybe um, the much more older generation kind of keep coming back. But what we need to do is to make sure that you know that there are these new bunch of people that will come back and give this space a chance. So for us, um, as we learn more from the community, from the public, what is working, what does not work, um, we found that if you sincerely put up some things that will let them celebrate, whether the culture or the tradition, um, and also the heritage of the space, a lot of them come back for the grams, uh, for the photos, for the videos, um, and that's what kind of make things work at Kwai Tai Hong. Yeah, I, I find that quite interesting because I I think um you made references to the community there, right? And I think um in our last conversation um you did say that they were pretty welcoming, but at the same time, you know, one thing the people to go to Petaling Street is one thing, but going to your area is another thing, right? So do these I guess visitors apart from I guess visiting uh Kwai Chai Hong, do they also explore the older quote unquote uh Petaling Street as well? So um, it's interesting that you ask this question because um, we recently, especially when um, things are getting a little better and a lot of people are writing about how um, things are, I guess, moving um, a little better in terms of the pandemic and people are more daring already, they are able to come out. 
um, we saw you know the people in Petaling Street saying that um, the audiences or the traffic from Guaitai Hong is actually going to uh, Petaling Street, and they are very happy to see that. You know, when we read something like that, it really makes us, um, I guess, very humble. You know, because the intention has always been we want to bring people back to KL Chinatown. But when you hear the people in KL Chinatown, like the people in Petaling Street, say that the audience from uh, the traffic from Guaitai Hong is coming over to spilling over to the other parts of Petaling Street, that's actually quite, um, uh, I'd say humbling humbling and very blessed because we when we hear something like that we say oh we we were thinking otherwise we were hoping that you know there were more people coming back to the whole of uh, KL Chinatown but when people say that it is the Kuwaiti Hong audience or traffic that's going to Petaling Street that's that's quite a happy thing and and the fact that a lot of this mushrooming of cafes and um, resto bars is just just all around Guaitai Hong, which is which used to be a much more quiet part of uh, KL Chinatown. So if the whole of Petaling Street, if you look at it, um, the part where Guaitai uh, Hong is, is usually the more quiet part because there were a lot of wholesale markets and they were really not targeted to uh, retailers per se, or, or should I say the consumers per se. Um, now it's very different. The crowd is is coming from this side. They come to Petaling Street for this, to come to this area at Guaitai Hong. So that's that's why it's very, very humbling and we can only say, um, yeah, we, we didn't expect this, obviously, but we are we're really happy with the result. Mm. Um, I mean, as much as it sounds positive, um, was there any form of, I guess, clashes one way or another between the more romantic, the more traditional folks who perhaps are attached to the older identity of Petaling Street compared to the more, I guess, modern uh, identity where you know you have a lot of these cafes which might not necessarily fit the old identity of Telling Street. Uh, okay, so I guess when it comes to gentrification, there's always both sides of um, two sides of the sword, right? Because I think there will be in everything you do, whether gentrification or not, there will always be like a uh, like a ten twenty percent of people who may not like the change or they may not agree with the things that you are doing, and I'm. I don't think whatever we do will be like a hundred percent supported by every single person. At least, especially when we started, there was still like a fifty-fifty chance of people just uh, not agreeing with what we do. And in fact, till now, of course, there will be some older generation of people who does not want change. Like they really do not want too much traffic. They do not want uh, things to change. But the dilapidated state of what Chijongkai is looking, or what at least Kuala Hong was looking. It's not going to help any one of them or uh, those people who live there. So um, I would say um, if I could please 80% of the people, at least 80% of people agreeing to it, I think, I've, I think we've done okay. Um, and I, I, I'm just making an assumption here. I believe there's more than 80% of people who like what's being done. It, it does increase the real estate pricing of the area. So it does kind of move some of the old folks or the, the old businesses out um, because that means they weren't able to continue, you know, uh, very low rent or, or businesses there in terms of, um, you know, their wholesale market. Because when things are booming and everybody is renting the space at a higher price, then they do, they do lose out. But I think that's part of, you know, gentrification. You do want to make that space attracting more people, more people will come back, give this heritage space a chance. And if you've seen the photos of how it was before, I think I've showed that to you guys, uh, 2019, there's still a lot of reference to it. You can watch them online or on our Facebook. 
um, you would see the before and you probably won't want to come to this space if you have seen the before. Mm, all right. Okay. So let's talk about the pandemic. Yeah. Um, how did Kwai Chai Hong cope with that? Okay. Pandemic. Pandemic mm. was 2020, I think March, March or so. March, or right? April. Yeah. yeah, March. Mm. Um, you know what's the main um, concern we have really? It's for the tenants that were um, connected to Kwai Chai Hong. So we have 10 tenants altogether and all of them were F&B. Uh, so when when the pandemic happened, the only thing, the only one concern we had was how are they going to do? Because the thing about Kwai Tai Hong, uh, especially the back alley, you would notice that we've constantly or I should say consistently made it free. That means people come in for free. So we don't actually earn any profit or make any money from there. It is for the tenant. We make this space, uh, people will come back and then tenants will have traffic and it's like a you know, um, a vicious cycle, right? So when people and traffic comes, the tenants do well, the area do well, and then everything booms. Then what happens when people cannot come out and then the tenants won't be able to do well and then how are they going to pay rent? So at least for the first three, four months, um, when everybody is just trying so hard to cope with the pandemic, when I say trying to sort of cope with you, if you remember how it was in March, April, we just didn't know what to do. We just sat home. I mean, all of us were sitting home just waiting for instructions or waiting for directions or what needs to be done. Um, a lot of them, uh, like the tenants, they still needed to, they have costs, they have salary that they have to pay, but there was no way of people buying. There was very little effort about doing delivery. There was very, people were still not entirely on delivery platform for food, right? So tenants were, were totally um, taken off guard and they couldn't cope. And we could only do one thing and that's to give discount. And for the first month, um, I think the month of, the first three months, in fact, we've given one month of free rent. Then we try to give half a month off because we realized that we have cost to run as well. Um, and then generally it was, you know, between 30% off or half rent or, you know, in some good months. We, when we could, we would be totally free. Um, so that's what we could do. But it cannot be a long run thing because you can't survive with that because we have uh, costs and overheads ourselves. Um, but generally, with those assistance, which is like the 50% off, the 30% off, and then you went some months 100% off, um, they survived. Um, out of the 10 tenants we have, um, two didn't make it. Um, replaced very quickly by two new brands or two new uh, FMB, um, and they are doing. They are striving. They are doing really well. So, so if you ask me, how did pandemic do um, when it first hit us? Some of our tenants suffered and they had to go. Um, the rest kind of hung on, you know, grit their teeth and hung on. And I'd say for now, I can see they're all doing very well. I mean, you're talking about weekends. Um, they have to turn people away because it's fully booked. Uh, so, so far. Touch wood, um, things are okay at uh, Guaite Hong in terms of uh, how we are doing. How about the back alley? Uh, about the back alley, we had to close during the pandemic. Most, um, I think, six months we have closed. We've closed close to six months, um, and that's because we were labeled as a tourism location. So we weren't even sure which rule to follow. You know, do we follow the the retail rule and close like the retail people? Do we follow the rule of the, the tourism, the locations? Or, you know, we weren't really sure what to follow. Uh, we eventually end up following the tourism 
guidelines because we were getting quite a number of tourists and people kind of always label us as a, a tourist location. Um, so there was a period of time, even um, end of last year, mid to the end of last year, where tourism uh, industry cannot open or locations for the tourism industry cannot open. We just remain closed. Lah. But that was, uh, tenants were doing okay already. Um, they were all doing delivery and they were all picking up um, their own style of how to run business during the pandemic. So so I'd say generally, we are really lucky because the moment um, we opened in September last year, we reopened, there were already crowds coming. From a historical lane, we move on to a museum, a museum that showcases miniatures called Miniature. It's always fascinating to see miniature replicas of things that we see on a daily basis, and that sense of amazement is what Wan Cheng Huat, founder of Miniature Malaysia, tries to instill in visitors of the museum that's located in Sungai Wang Plaza. So basically, I came across uh, this miniature as an accident. Uh, it wasn't intended, you know. I, I used to travel a lot. Uh, with my friends and buddies, we go around learning about countries, uh, their culture, their heritage. And, you know, we love all these things. We used to go to all the museums and galleries. And we thought, you know, that what can we do, you know, to do for Malaysia? And if we could have these sort of things, right, uh, it would really make Malaysia very unique. Because well, we saw that uh, a lot of things that we, we, a lot of those attractions that we have in Malaysia, you, you, you have the same thing in Singapore or in Thailand or Indonesia, right? If you say uh, aquarium, zoo, shopping complex, you know, the other countries have it. But what really can we have to really stand out? So this idea born out back in 2008 with my friends. And we, we started um, developing it and it evolved to what it is today to represent Malaysia's uh, culture and heritage. That's, that's what we've always been very fascinated about. All right, yeah. So, so that's I guess that's to a certain extent the vision behind miniature, right? But what what's your personal relationship with you know miniature sculptures and figurines? Yeah, I, I have actually no background with miniature. <laughs> uh, we we started doing this uh, just purely just jumping on the the, the boat. You know, we we have no experience in doing three D printing at the start. We even. Uh, doing 3D design, right? We didn't have any background, uh, let alone doing these miniatures. Um, but that vision to have this, right, actually pushed us the the uh, vision to to make this place uh, is the, the actual driver that made us to believe and uh, to you know basically learn all the traits. Uh. So we we started off making miniatures, not really nice miniatures, but uh, we learned. We made better ones and. And we improve and we make even more realistic one. And today, what we have today is uh, basically uh, all the trial and errors of the past many years of what we've been doing. So yeah, basically, for we we, we stumbled, like I mentioned, we just stumbled on this accidentally, and it's, uh, it, it just evolved to become what it is today. I see. So, so I guess to an extent, um, correct me if I'm wrong. You're more inspired by the idea of showcasing Malaysia in a totally different way, and the way to do it is via miniature sculpture rather than being a miniature enthusiast yourself uh, initially. Right. Correct. Because um, for me, it's very personal also because um, I'm I'm Baba Nyonya, and it's sad that my generation did not have any 
thing passed down. You know, these traditions from, from my parents' time, right? About Baba Nyonya. Not much have been passed down to us and, and it's going to sort of like uh, die off at our generation. And that, you know, pushed me to, you know, to do this so that I can do my part to instill this, uh, all this heritage and culture and you know, put into miniature. And it benefits me, it benefits everyone, it benefits the younger generation coming in. So that was actually the what what my personal driver to go into miniatures. Why is it so appealing among the enthusiasts? Like, for example, I mean, I'm sure you have interacted with people who are actually like into miniatures, right? What is it that makes it so appealing to you know people who are into it? Um, what makes it so appealing? Well, basically, they never expect to actually see what they see in here. Never did they expect that. Uh, the miniatures that we make, right, are so realistic. And it really, truly, sometimes when they walk around the, the gallery, it makes them remember about their past. Because some sections of a miniature right, have uh, nostalgic miniatures. We, we, we showcase about the past. We showcase about the current. You know? So when they walk through, uh, they, they'll feel like, hey, I belong here. You know, I've been through this before and I can share it with my, you know, if they come with their kids. They, they're able to tell their kids, you know, this is how um, mommy grew up last time. This is how it looks like. So in that sense, uh, it creates a bond between the relationship. And when people come in, right, um, they never actually had that expectation that this would happen. So when they leave miniature, they really feel that they have been, you know, touched really deep in their heart that um, there's, there's such place that exists. And it really speaks about the culture, uh, the, the heritage that we put in. So I, I, I guess the, our visitors, when they come in, the, the main thing that feel appealing is because they can connect with our miniatures. And, and it somehow brings back the memories of their past, the happy, the, the sad, you know, all, all, all of those things. Let's talk about something that's a bit more technical. How did you decide on the skill to showcase um, these aspects of Malaysia? Um, considering that I think I've been to the museum and I realized that you know there are some some of your dioramas are a bit bigger and some are a bit smaller, right? So how did you decide on the skill uh, and how to showcase it better to to your audience? Uh, a little bit of the background was before moving to Sungai Wang, our our old location was in Summit and the entire miniature was built on a 187 scale. And um, during that time, uh, over three years, we've got a lot of feedbacks from um, our visitors at the time. They're, they're letting us know, you know, sometimes the details are too small to, to actually look at or even appreciate. You know? So when we, we moved here to Sungai Wang, we thought that it would be nice to have a different skills, especially the the models that showcases about food and the dioramas that are showcases about the sceneries of Malaysia. So we uh, we, we tested many types of um, models, uh, different skills, and we came to a decision to make uh, the models at around between 1.8 to 1.12 skills for certain section. And uh, the other part of the section, we still maintain it at 1.87 scale. The reason why 187 is because the trains that we have are running on 187. And this is a very uh, popular skill uh, in Europe and, and the other American countries where they, they have these uh, railroad trains uh, exhibition. 
All right. Okay. So, um, what what I find quite interesting about how you approach your dioramas and also your exhibition is, you don't only showcase the usual landscapes, but you try to showcase places that are quite, I would say, I mean, not as mainstream, you know. Um, and and that's pretty refreshing for me, the fact that I guess um you're not just showcasing. I mean, you do showcase the you know Datara Merdeka, a miniature version of Datara Merdeka and whatnot. But at the same time, you also showcase different parts of the country and not only focusing on again the usual spots, but spots that are I guess quite um unique and less known among others, right? So what made you decide on that kind of curation process? And how did you go about, I guess, um, replicating that for your miniature exhibition? Considering that I think it's almost true to scale to a certain extent. Um, did you have to do a lot of research and did you have to go on the ground and you know, take photos, take videos and whatnot? Yeah. Um, so the idea to showcase all, uh, all these hidden gems of uh, Malaysia, right, uh, basically drawn back uh, from our first from our very first idea uh, to really showcase about Malaysia. And we always are very proud to talk about other countries and we forget, we tend to forget that Malaysia has really a lot of these hidden gems and unexplored places. And that's the the true inspiring thing about what uh, this whole project is about is we are able to go to these places replicate them and present it to people. And true enough, uh, we are very fortunate that people share the same view. When they come in, they they, they do appreciate that Malaysia has so many of these uh, hidden gems, uh, places that they have not visited before. And going through miniature uh, actually really put them in a the position that, hey, I mean, even consider going to these places when you know the borders of uh, the state borders open up, and it really helped to promote the local domestic travel in in Malaysia now, especially during this COVID period, right? Where they cannot go overseas. So yeah, basically that was our um, our intention. And to answer your question about the buildings, it really had to go down to the site and measure the buildings by hand. Uh, I will usually go down with my partner, uh, uh, Chi Wing, and he'll be taking photographs while I'll be standing with my hands apart, trying to measure the building, the, the windows. Uh, we can't really use the measuring tape because you can't see it on the camera. So we will take notes and, and we draw sketches and I'll use my full body as the reference. And from there, from the photograph of the 360, of the buildings, we will translate them into the 3D drawings. So from the 3D drawings, we will typically take around maybe a day to two days, three days, depending on how big the building is. And we will draw it out, each facade, until we get the whole entire building. And that was back in 2014 to 2015. And with the advancement of Google, this uh, street view, you know, the Google map and YouTube with uh, high definition drone footages around Malaysia, it really helped us to explore other buildings and draw them out without going to those places. So that technology really helped us in a sense that uh, brings down the cost by a lot. We don't need to travel to that place. Uh, yeah. 
You just heard from Wan Cheng Huat, founder of Miniature Malaysia, a museum showcasing small-scale replicas of interesting places in Malaysia. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin. We're in the midst of recapping some of the more interesting conversations that we had halfway through the year. And up next, we spoke to K. Azrael Ismail. As a photographer that dabbles in the more old-school ways, he decided to buy a decommissioned ambulance to turn into a mobile dark room. We spoke to him to hear how and why he did this. Hi, my name is Dr. K. Azrael Ismail. Uh, I'm currently the research fellow over at the Taylor's University, uh, particularly taking care of uh, in the areas of uh, the postgraduate studies, PhD students, uh, and I'm pretty much right now. Uh, well, I, I would say the closest thing that I could see myself is a practicing academician or just a practicing artist as well at the same time, or maybe more towards practicing artist uh, in the areas of photo historical processes. Uh, but I see uh, along the way as well exponentially that I'm also considering, not only considering uh, other modes of uh, medium as well. But the fundamental and core of what I do is um, still uh, at o- over in uh, photo historical processes uh, in which um, dealing with uh, the methods and means in making image objects as how they did in the 19th century. Mm. Um, I guess one of the reasons why I want to talk to you now is because of this recent project that you're embarking on. Um, it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It's mobile dark room. Yeah, perhaps you can explain to us what that is and how did you go about it? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, you actually managed to get an ambulance and actually, yeah, it's essentially yeah putting a like a dark room in an ambulance. Yeah, so perhaps mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Okay. Um. Well, this particular purchase is more like a serendipity and um, it's more like impromptu as well this is something that I saw uh, while actually perusing through the uh, one of the social media's marketplace and I saw like uh, almost like immediately that somebody was selling this particular ambulance unit so I was curious and I went and contacted the said fellow and actually I saw it and almost immediately fell in love with it because I saw the practicality and answers to a, a whole lot of challenges I, um, that usually comes around when doing these processes because um, the uh, the challenges, what I'm saying here is uh, the amount of equipments that one has to bring, the setup, uh, and also the, uh, the supply of running water as well. So because uh, you need all the uh, particular ways and methods to sustain these images without degradations of, of, well, considering our weather is very, very hot and very humid as well, which is not a good thing if it remains to be, um, well, well, while making, making works with this process. So uh, even in fact, like this particular ambulance have enough room uh, at the back to set up everything. Uh, literally all my chemistries, all the uh, equipments could be fitted in and actually could very comfortable very very comfortable to work inside it um, it's nothing of a new actually people who utilize transportation uh, 
to place in dark room in transportation. This has been done as well in the 19th century. Horses, carriages, uh, caravans, uh, all sorts, even the contemporary practitioners overseas that we saw them. Some are even, yes, uh, use ambulance, buses, uh, what was it, recreational vehicles, and all sorts, just as long as that they are able to produce this work. So I saw the opportunity and actually did the sort of minor modification, almost little modification was needed. So, and certainly then, then I sort of, we, uh, I see the utility could actually extend the, um, my travels uh, regionally as well, so that I could actually like bring about without worrying too much that I have to rush back to my studio uh, to process further and all that. I see. So, so the mobility, like it's it's actually a, I guess, crucial part in 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 making that decision to actually buy the ambulance. You actually like having that mobility of being able to process your photos immediately after you have taken them. I guess. Yeah, it's it's sort of weird. It's an upgrade because I, I've been doing works outdoor in the past as well. Uh, it was small at first. It was at the back, at a at the boot of the trunk of my car, small, tiny, dark, darkened area. Uh, which is black cloth and all that. Then it's a portable, what we call it as dark box, which is a box size, more slightly larger than a briefcase uh, to develop the plate. And then, of course, then I, of course, I upgraded to a slightly larger space, but very, very hot and very humid, which is a, a working dark tent. Considering all weather is very, very hot, so it's, it's not comfortable at all. Uh, considering the air movement was a bit stifled and it's very, very much... Uh, not a pleasant uh, experience and it's almost like a continuous upgrade uh, to work um, to find solutions and actually to work more and more uh, comfortable area uh, to do what I do. Mm. The decision was made initially because you actually have a specific purpose for it but you also have started, I guess, engaging, you know, making workshops and I guess exposing people to to the concept of a dark room, right? Is is that part of the thought process as well when you bought this ambulance? Well, it's it's a bonus uh, to do demonstrations and actually people are curious as well, considering that is that it is still remain looks like an ambulance. It has a presence. It's not like a regular colored uh, truck or van, and people are sort of we're paying attention a little bit more and like a strange fellow with a wood, big wooden camera coming out from it in and out and there's an ambulance it certainly does have its own sets of uh, we are calling for attention but however I mean like it, it's a pleasant thing I mean like uh, to see locals and actually they, they were asking what, what I was doing and I showed them what I do and it caught fascination by many and interest and they were asking whether this sort of things can still be done in the current present day which is it is still possible and fundamentally as well uh, this process I think even in the past I did mention that the, it's still uh, the fundamental basic of it is always science so art and science has never actually parted ways in this uh, particular disciplinary area and so is some other disciplinary track as well so it's been made to easily understood in such a way like, wow, okay, it can be done this and this and that way. And image makings, of course, is a strange thing uh, towards this. It's almost, uh, I would say, theatrical uh, when producing the image in situ. 
where the image pops up before their eyes and there you go it's almost like a, it's it's a pleasant thing uh, to see if there are viewers that look at how I do work and they say wow okay it can it can still be done and um yeah it's it's pretty much um sort of way it has its own mini demonstration to local passer buyers i suppose Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and I, I would like to I guess talk deeper about that. But uh, just to go back to the ambulance again. I mean, the purchase was made for a very practical reason. But did you ever mm-hmm. think about I guess you know I I don't know whether you're a reflective kind of person. I would like to think you are. But you know, have you ever thought of like you know, oh my god, you know, am- ambulance is usually closely associated with you know people who are sick. You know, um. So did you ever think about these things? You know, when it comes to purchasing the vehicle, or was it a very practical purchase that you know that you like didn't even think about the narratives or the story behind an ambulance or this particular <laughs> ambulance, perhaps? I know. I mean, like, so it, considering the the age of nowadays, is like the presence of an ambulance is always bad news, uh, isn't it? I mean, like having a drive around maybe it's a pleasant thing because people stay away from you they sort of will leave you alone uh, <laughs> at a respectable distance um it is practicality that that actually comes first um i, I don't ask about the history of the ambulance i don't want to know i mean like uh, in terms of like uh, some people say did, did you know if the ambulance had a lot of attachment to it or whatnot. I say, no, no, no. I mean, like, that's not the whole point of things. I mean, like, if something was there in presence, and pretty much I can't do much about it because I find quite a big amount of comfort. Even I named the ambulance as well. I call it as tofu. tofu. It's kind of cute. Yeah, I mean, like, it's because it has this beautiful cream. You know, I like the old ambulance or government-issued uh, vehicles. Um, in the past, it has a cream color to it. Um, it's just one of those things. Yeah, I call it tofu. So pretty much, um, there's an infinity attachment, and tofu has a uh, has its own <laughs> behaviors as well, like all other vehicles. Uh, it has its own sets of jealousies of things. So <laughs> it's sort of way has a has a synergy as well uh, of a relationship. But I'm not saying that that's like sort of uh, absolutely there. But I think it's a nice thing as well to actually have that kind of uh, attachment to things mm. how old is the ambulance well it's roughly it certainly is about uh, let me see if I could recall it correctly 2006 so that would be 2006 15 16 16 years to be fair about 16 years old That was K. Azrael Ismail, a photographer who modified an old decommissioned ambulance into a mobile dark room. Last but not least, the show also featured the folks behind Wawasan Project, a group that archived materials related to the now defunct but still highly influential Wawasan Doplo Doplo. We spoke to the individuals behind the project, Denise Lai, Lim Xiaoyun and Yap Li Sheng. Hi, my name is Xiao. Uh, I am the curator of this project alongside Denise. Hi, I'm Denise, uh, also a co-curator. Um, yeah, and um, currently I'm an art and design historian, but you know, outside of that role, I also like working with my friends on projects like this, uh, where we can build things out of things we talk about for coffee over Zoom to think about art and design and the world we live in. Hi, I'm Lei Xing. I'm a contributor to the project. Um, outside of this, I, am, uh, I work in a tech startup. 
right. Okay, thank you so much for um, agreeing to be part of this conversation. Uh, I guess what I want to know first is um, obviously what is Wawasan Project and what are you planning to achieve with, with this project? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if it's useful. We just give a kind of brief um, history of Wawasan 2020 just to introduce everyone um, or just kind of refresh everyone's memories. But, um, you know, Wawasan 2020 was this ambitious program a national goal that was launched in 1991 by Mahathir, right, that laid out nine socioeconomic goals to make Malaysia this developed nation by the year 2020. Um, and, you know, filtered through and occurring alongside this goal, we witnessed the birth of things like the National Planetarium, the Multimedia Super Corridor, uh, the North-South Expressway, um, and of course the Twin Towers. So like these developments that were um, loaded with this idea of a new Malaysian modernity. Um, and it's hard to summarize the program, right, because its delivery was so piecemeal. And of course, it occurred over several years of Mahathir's reign. Um, and then, you know, its ideas have been kind of tirelessly, like, resuscitated even today. Um, so, but I think mostly how we remember Wallace on 2020 is ultimately this stream that never materialized. Um, so in 2019, um, all of us, you know, who grew up during the age of Wallace on 2020 came together to collaborate on this physical and digital archive um, of Wallace on 2020 with the Malaysia Design Archive in KL. Um, and this was prompted by obviously, you know, the timeliness of the archive, but also um, the fact that, you know, it had not been documented in a single archive um, and also not through a design lens. Um, and so our archive kind of aimed to shift that lens towards, you know, the variety of people and the mediums that were very heavily imbricated in this construction of Wallace on 2020. So we have comics, we have performances, architectural renderings, competition entries, all of which, you know, go to show the, the variety of people who were involved in the making of the project. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's pretty interesting to, to think about what was on 2020, especially when you alluded to the fact that we all grew up grew up during that era, right? Because I think I have my own memories of how I, I guess, uh, found out about what was on 2020 and how I interacted with with it to a certain extent. Uh, but maybe, yeah, I guess I can get, you know, the three of you to share your personal uh, experiences, you know, engaging with what was on 2020 back when you were younger and also how you perhaps reflected on it now that you're quote-unquote older, you know, before you, I guess, embark on that project, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say that what was on 2020 is something I thought about every day till, you know, the year 2020. Um, but it was actually, you know, in 2019, I was going through um, my own basement because my mom's a hoarder and that's where I get it from. Um, and we have this like coloring book that I found um, that was essentially this teaching book um, or kind of like an art instruction book that we were given um, during primary school. So I went to a Chinese primary school um, in Damansara. Um, and so, you know, you would have all these like different visitors coming in and, you know, selling and like peddling the different products. And this one was by this artist called Aslan, who I still cannot find this mysterious Aslan. Um, and he basically um, made this book that was, you know, it was called Kale, the Vision City. And it was these, you know, amazing chromatic crayon drawings of Kale city skylines and, you know, like, or accompanied by that, like robots and like the Hulk, you know. Um, but it was an instructional booklet. So it was about how you... Um, basically recreate what Aslan drew. Um, so I thought at the time that it was interesting that, you know, when I was a kid, I was kind of consuming um, and uh, recreating these kind of visuals of what was on 2020 um, without even realizing it. And that's kind of what spurred me to kind of think seriously about it too. How, how about you guys? I think for me, 
I really grew up sort of singing the song. You know, I think everyone is very familiar with the song. But I also grew up in Penang, so in some ways I was quite removed from the center of the city. I only really started going to KL maybe in my early twenties when I started to work there, and then you know later I moved to KL. And I think you know coming as an outsider into the city, I always loved the Twin Towers. I always loved Petronas Twin Towers. Right, it was the kind of emblem for me of what um, KL stood for in comparison to the kind of like very sleepy Penang that I'm from. <laughs> Um, so, you know, for me, I think Wawasan 2020 has always really been a story told through buildings and through the skyline of KL, um, especially someone who has sort of really looked at KL only from afar. And even to this day, I feel a little bit like an outsider when I am in KL. For me, I think it's, it's somewhat opposite from both my friends here, right? It's not the promise of development, but rather the failure of development. So I remember kind of growing up my parents would talk about the 97 crisis a lot, right? Because that almost kind of decimated the family fortune in manufacturing. And to me, it was the opposite, right? How Wawasan has failed. Um, but, you know, as growing up, I think it's not so much that it has failed, rather it has seeped into many multiple forms. And that's why um, this project that we are doing here is so important, right? Inve- reinvestigate how uh, it has become something else. Um, over the past few decades. Um, going back to, to Wawasan Project, um, you started doing this project in 2019. Obviously, 2020 is a difficult year to somehow, I guess, digest when it comes to talking about Wawasan 2020 only because um, we had other distractions, you know, global distraction. But regardless, um, you know, it's been two years now. It's 2022 now. Um, why, why are we still, to some extent, fascinated with... with what was in 2020? Two years later, you know, if you know what I mean. I mean, and 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 I know it's good to to be reflective, but what else can we can we gather from from this whole yeah? What was in 2020 concept? Yeah, I think one thing that became clear as we were working on our online exhibition was that what was in 2020 really you know means such different things to so many people as can be told from like the stories that we all have of it, right? I mean, in some ways, it's really this blank slate upon which we can just project our ideas. I think that's the thing that has always fascinated me about the project, like what was in 2020 as an idea. You know, it's like specific enough, but it's also vague enough such that everyone kind of has their own interpretation of it, has their own story of it. And when it becomes such a big part of the way in which political subjectivity, I think, especially in the 1990s and early 2000s was uh, created, you know, the way we think of ourselves as political subjects at the time was really uh, tied up with this idea of Wallace in 2020. Our also kind of like personal subjectivity in some ways, I think, becomes tied up with 20, Wallace in 2020. So it's, I guess, why it continues to fascinate is it's because it's so hard to extricate. You know, it's so hard to like remove this and still like feel like ourselves, you know, in some way. Um, not only as sort of like citizens but also as just like individuals i want to latch on to that and kind of add to that as well right um we what was 2020 may have ended but we are all what was subjects right and what i mean by that is the three of us and alongside many other contributors as we trunk through the we plowed through the archive what we saw clearly in the 1990s was this um anxiety that Mahathir and um, his propagandists and everyone in the policy team had right about how Malaysia is backward, right? They wanted to literally mold this modern subject who is capable, who is faster, better, 
almost kind of like a huge, like a robotic humanoid, right? And and this is actually very, it's very, um, it's it's it wouldn't be, it's actually very in Mahathir's form, right? Remember in the nineteen seventies, he wrote this treatise about the Malay dilemma and how. Malays have to kind of like modernize themselves to compete in the modern economy. And 20 years later, he comes back with something similar, which is a Malaysian subject is now backward and they have to modernize themselves. And we are a product of that, even though the deadline has lapsed and we can't kind of escape that. And so it's worth relooking how that has shaped uh, how we conceive of uh, ourselves and our nation and our subjects. Yeah, and I think... Like Lays, you know, also pointed out that aspect of Wilson 2020 that is, you know, it's just a little bit absurd, you know, and I think, you know, like kind of, it's just, it's, it's just fun to look at because I think, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Hanif, like, you know, we were, we were doing this project, you know, the, the year of 2020, which was a very, you know, like the climate of 2020 was, you know, often, well, it was, it was hard, it was difficult and, you know, often how we dealt with it was through humor, right? And, you know, in many ways, Wilson 2020 was the same, you know. You have things that are, you know, just like downright, like, you know, mind boggling events, like, you know, like the Proton Weera being dropped um, from a plane to try to symbolize like Malaysian spirit, um, um, you know, like things like, you know, like uh, world records being set in a mall of how many people can fit in a mall. Um, and so things like this, you know, it's it's about how, you know, modernity and like, you know, the idea of or the, the face of Malaysia being a developed nation was made to be something um, consumable and easily palatable for us to understand. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and that was Denise Lai. She's joined by Lim Xiaoyun and Yap Li Sheng and together they're part of a collective called Wawasan Project. That's all we have for this mid-year recap episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at pfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store, and you can also find our podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharudin, and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Stay safe and join us again next week, only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.